Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 565 with Jonah Sachs. I think you will dig. Jonah has some pro tips. If you're feeling like maybe you're in a bit of a rut, I've been feeling that way a little bit here and there over these pretty crazy weeks. Jonah's got some tips for that and more. So you'll learn one, why the experts are often the most unreliable. Two, how to make any task more exciting and engaging. And three, how to turn anxiety into fuel for creativity. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash F565 or simply tap and expand the episode notes or description in your current podcast app player. Although some podcast app players don't have clickable links, despite our best efforts. So visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash F565 and you will solve that problem. Also check out the Golden Nugget email list, which has summary insights from Jonah and all 564 guests who've gone before him. An email you can read in about uh, two or three minutes and access to the vault of, of all of them, which is pretty cool little knowledge archive there. Now here's Jonah's story. Jonah Sachs is an author, speaker, and viral marketing pioneer. Jonah helped to create some of the world's first and still most heralded digital social change campaigns. As co-founder of Free Range Studios, his work on Amnesty International's Blood Diamonds viral film was seen by 20 million people and was delivered to every member of Congress, helping drive passage of the Clean Diamond Act. He later helped create the story of Stuff, which viewed by over 60 million people marked a turning point in the fight to educate the public about environmental and social impacts associated with consumer goods. Jonah's work and opinions have been featured in the New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, Fox News, Sundance Film Festival, NPR, and more. Sachs also pens a column for Fast Company, which named him one of today's 50 most influential social innovators. Big thanks to Jonah for sharing his wisdom with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check him out. And big thanks to our sponsor, Acorns. Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future. You don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. In fact, you can get started with just your spare change. Acorns recommends an expert-built portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. NerdWallet.com, whom I love on these sorts of matters, gives Acorns a whopping 4.7 stars and says, quote, if you want to make the most of your spare change, there's no better place to do that than Acorns. Head to acorns.com slash awesome or download the acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today and we got a legal disclaimer here it may not be representative of all clients tier one compensation provided compensation provides an incentive to positively promote acorns view important disclosures at acorns.com awesome investing involves risk including the loss of principal please consider your objectives risk tolerance and acorns as fees before investing acorns advisors llc acorns is an sec registered investment advisor brokerage services are provided to clients of acorns by acorn securities llc member at finra sipc for more information visit acorns.com now, here's Jonah. Jonah, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Pete. It's great to be here. Well, really excited to dig into your wisdom. And you've got an interesting turn of a phrase, unsafe thinking. What does this mean? It's just the idea that if the world is changing around us, our careers are changing around us, business is changing, that what once was safe, relying on what we once knew, what we've always done, what's worked for us so far is actually incredibly dangerous, that if the world changes, we need to change with it. And so trying to help people get out of that sense that they need to seek safety and really jump in in a smart way to uh, unsafe thinking, which is about kind of breaking all your own rules. 
intriguing. But well, so and that's a fun that's a fun phrase there because unsafe. We think, hey, safety is important. We don't want to do anything that's that's not safe. But uh, here you are advocating unsafe thinking is what's up. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've just had my own personal experience of running a business for uh, 15 years that that eventually I did sell. But uh, going through this process of being on the wild cutting edge of viral video in the early 2000s and then getting into that place that so many businesses get once they reach a certain level of success and so many people get to, which is you just try to recreate what you did before. But, you know, the Internet changes so fast and every industry changes so fast these days that that falling back on what you know, what you know, it's just deadly and it became deadly for my business. And so I kind of took this quest to learn how to break through and to teach myself new ways to think. Oh, right. And so can you share specifically, you say it became deadly. How did that unfold? Yeah. So I, I started this company called Free Range Studios when I was 22 years old with my best friend from high school. And we had no idea what we were doing, basically. We were doing social change advertising. And somebody once asked us, you know, can you make a, an internet video? We'd never seen an internet video before back in 2000, but we figured we'd give it a try. And I think that kind of beginner's luck, that kind of just joy of doing what we love to do really helped us break into an industry or start an industry in a way. We were getting 20, 40, 50 million views on some of these socially conscious activism videos. And then as time went on and we tried, more and more people were coming to us saying, can you reproduce that video you make? Can you make me something like that? We had 35 employees. We were trying to churn it out kind of like a factory. And what I was noticing first was look, we need a lot more structure here. We need a lot more rules. We need a lot more ways of getting people to just do what we know works. And the more rules I put in place and the more management consultants I worked with, the less fun everything became and the less excitement there was in the work. And frankly, the less creative the work was. And I kept thinking, all right, well, how do I put better rules in place? Or how do I discipline people more to get them to just you know, be creative? And I realized at some moment when people started quitting, when I just looked at our work and I was like, yeah, this looks like the same stuff we were doing five years ago, that all those rules and processes were actually getting in the way of creative breakthrough. And I didn't know how to get out of it. It was actually a really difficult life moment for me, really depressing. And, and I doubted myself. And so I started reading neurobiology texts, social sciences, and asking how people that I really admired, how they were able to break out of these ruts. And I found that almost everybody who was successful got to this point at some point. What makes them continue successful is they found a way to break out of it. And that's what I was really after when I was you know, doing the research for this book. Mm-hmm. But well, speaking of research, I'd love it if you could share some of the most hard-hitting you know, studies and, and, and numbers associated with the benefits of stepping out and, and doing some more unsafe thinking. Yeah, certainly. So one of my favorites is I did a bunch of research on expertise. And they asked, they did kind of a, a broad study of about 20,000 expert predictions. And they found that the most vaunted experts over 10 years in each of their fields, in business, in politics, in invention, in business, were worse than dart-throwing monkeys at predicting what was going to happen in the future. So they were worse than random chance at making predictions. And how could that be? Well, they went a level deeper and they found that the more you were quoted on TV, the more social currency you had, the more likely you were to actually be even more wrong than your average expert. So, so experts tend to be less accurate in making predictions than someone who's just a complete beginner in many fields when the world is changing quickly around them. Not only that, the worst thing you can do is believe yourself to be an expert. Once you believe you're an expert, then you get even more stupid. So they showed in a couple of controlled studies, they showed 
that people who first said that they knew a lot about financial terms primed themselves to then say that they knew what the meaning of fake financial terms were. So they would ask them a bunch of terms and say, are you familiar with all these terms? And some of them were completely fake. The people who claimed that they knew more were the ones who were fooling themselves into believing and too proud to say, oh, I've never heard of that. So basically, as we gain expertise, we gain also the ability to have impact in our field. And so we start to move up this curve of impact and uh, quality. But at a certain point, most people start to go back down. It's kind of an, an inverted U. And you get to the top of that U the minute you believe that you've become an expert. And so what I learned from that is that you have to break out of that sense that you know what you're doing. You have to break out of that sense of clinging to what you bring to the table, what maybe people are paying you for. They're looking for expertise, right? So they're paying you to have the answers. Really, in a world that's changing quickly, you have to have more questions. And so I look for research on on how that actually works. How do you actually break yourself out of that expert's trap? And there's a couple things that do that. One is kind of humiliating yourself, getting used to the idea of of acting and uh, showing yourself to be a beginner and to be an explorer rather than an expert. I tell the story of a CEO of 56,000 person company. The company was going kind of down the tube, but he was brought in. He knew he didn't have the answers for it. He brought together 5,000 of his employees in an arena. And this is in India where kind of CEOs are known to be sort of emperors in a way or thought to be. And instead of giving his presentation, he started doing this this Bollywood dance. And he was kind of a a heavy middle-aged guy. He's sweating profusely. He's a terrible dancer. And the arena is kind of rocking, but no one's dancing with him. And by the end, everyone's kind of laughing and wondering what's going on. And he kind of just sits down and he starts to give the presentation. And he basically said from that moment, he, had, he was able to pull himself down off that pedestal. He was able to admit that he didn't have all the answers. He was actually asked by the employees then to go to uh, give the same presentation to, to everyone in the company. So when you do whatever you have to, to break that sense that you stand above, you start to break that expert's trap. Other things you can do is engaging in fields where you know nothing. We're so specialized these days in our work, and we're so desiring to kind of keep going where we know. If you break out and start to, I take singing lessons. It's something I'm terrible at. But I do it because I begin to get more creative by stepping into a field in which I have no expertise. People who live abroad for six months are shown to be more creative than people who haven't had those experiences. So the whole takeaway from that piece of research, which I really loved, was stop thinking of yourself as an expert. Start thinking of yourself as an explorer. And the weird thing about it is that when you do that, you will find that people who follow you will not have less confidence in you. There's a lot of studies now that show that people prefer leaders who are humble and self-effacing to those who act like they have all the answers. Oh boy, there's so much good stuff in there. And, and, and that really resonates in terms of like experts and predictions. Like I can't help but shake my head when I'm reading like financial prediction stuff. It's just like, you know, but you sound smart because you're using all the words and you have a theory and, you know, a kind of, adds up that, uh, okay, that theory might uh, indeed result in those financial results. But in practice, it's like, it was, it's like back to the future or something. It's like, if you could really predict like that, you would just be crazy rich <laughs> and it's, it's unrealistic. Right. <laughs> that is true. That is true. <laughs> so, okay. Well, so then that, that's really interesting. Those people wouldn't have to be writing books. Oh, right. Right. Well, so that's great in, in terms of, especially when you, when you think you're the expert, then you're in even more trouble because you're you're not, I guess, you know, seeking the 
uh, disconfirmatory. Is that a word? <laughs> the, the, the evidence that goes against the, the expertise and, and prediction. <laughs> yep, disconfirmatory, exactly. <laughs> That's there. <laughs> exactly. Well, then let's get into it in terms of you know, how should we go about uh, building in the the practices so we're engaging in unsafe thinking and, and reaching wise decisions as frequently as possible. Yeah, well, the book is a long, long exploration of how we do that with kind of six or seven main areas we can do it in. And, you know, I can, I can jump to a couple more of the ways that we start actually stepping into those practices. Before we do, I do want to also say that we live in a world now where this has also become this sort of negative feeling about experts in certain realms where I'm not arguing for the idea that, for instance, in the middle of this COVID crisis, we shouldn't listen to what doctors and scientists have to say. We still, of course, live in a world where gaining information, education, understanding your environment is incredibly important. It's just that even those doctors and experts perform better when they don't hold themselves up to have all the answers, when they're constantly in that curious mode. So I'm not saying, you know, just go listen to your, your uncle about what to do to, to treat a pandemic. But I am saying that the more humble you are as an expert, the more flexible you're going to be out in your environment. But yeah, let's, let's look at a couple other things that, that we can do to, to be more creative and to be more flexible in our thinking. One thing that I found that I thought was just incredibly fascinating and really helped me break out of a few of my traps was this idea of attuning the level of challenge that you have to the level of competency you have. And that's so often what gets us stuck when we reach an impasse and we want to fall back on what we've always known and we find it's not working. That's often because our skills are not perfectly tuned yet to the challenge that we're taking on. So if you want to really understand this, you look at kind of motivation, right? And there's been a lot of work done on motivation. And, you, and you've probably heard some of the stuff about intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. They used to think that people were only motivated by rewards, like getting raises, making more money, status, all that kind of stuff. But then, you know, about 20 years ago, they started to really realize that there's more deep motivations that people carry with them, that when you actually give them rewards at times, they start to be less motivated. There's some interesting studies that show that, that young children who are asked to do art projects are more creative when you don't offer them candy for who's going to win the best, who's going to make the best piece of art. So that's called, you know, intrinsic motivation. But we often run out of intrinsic motivation when the going gets tough. And that's when we go back to our stereotypical thinking. And that's when we begin to really fail. So, so where do you draw that motivation from? Well, usually we think of intrinsic motivation coming from things like, oh, I have a passion for the work that I'm doing. I'm an artist or I'm an inventor. And yet we all have so many tasks we have to go through that are not necessarily intrinsically motivating. You know, any piece of building a career is going to be, you know, of varying degrees of excitement. We have to do them all well to make our careers work. So how do we keep that motivation and that creativity up? Well, that's where this theory called flow theory really becomes important. This researcher named uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, you'll never be able to spell it. Uh, it's, it's how to train myself to say it, but he was a rock climber. And he began to ask himself this question, which was, why do I go out there, nearly break my bones, rip up my fingertips, kind of give up all my money and, and, and time so that I can try to get to the top of a mountain from which I'm just going to come right back down. You know, where's, where's the motivation coming from in that? And he began to form an uh, early theory, which is now one of the best tested creativity theories, 
which is that people, when given a challenge that's just at the edge of their skills, will tune in and almost obsessively work on that problem. It's why people play so many video games, because the video game is always just a little bit better than you are, and it never gets too far ahead, and it never comes too far behind. So when you find yourself in a situation where your motivation is beginning to flag, you're probably out of flow. You'll know you're in flow because you know, you're, you're working for 12 hours and you hardly notice it, or you just can't wait to get back to that project. You know you're out of flow when you're procrastinating, you're putting it off, and you're phoning it in. So you know, what do you do? It's not really the task itself. It really has to do with whether your skills are just being pressed and just at the lower level of the challenge itself. And so what I ask people to do, and which I find to be extremely effective, is look at that thing you've been trying to do. Look at that thing you're procrastinating. Either it's not challenging enough for you, therefore you're getting bored by it and it's becoming rote. So how could you change the way that you do it so that you gamify it in a sense, you add challenge to it? Or on the other hand, it might be a little too far beyond your skill set to do it well, in which case, even when you're in a hurry, it really makes sense to step back and brush up those skills. Again, that's where we go to breaking that ego of the expert and saying, you know, I got to learn something here. So the next time that you're finding yourself flagging and losing motivation, I would really try to chart where your skills are, where the challenge is, and where they're departing. If you're bored, you know it's not challenging enough. If you're overwhelmed and exhausted, you know it's too challenging. And in the book, I just give lots of ways for companies to be organized that way, for people to break up tasks into different phases to keep that flow going. So another tip, that's what really gets that creative brain going. When you get in flow, you really do better work. Yeah, well, Jonah, I, I would love it if we could really kind of go through uh, a number of, of levers or tweaks to make something a bit more or a bit less challenging, because I don't have a whole lot of ideas here. <laughs> hey, there's some, there's some humble, self-effacing <laughs> action there, sure. I, I guess, because in practice, what I'll, I, I thought you were the expert here. <laughs> so I guess if I want to make it more challenging, sometimes I'll, I'll set a timer and see if I can... So do it faster within a timeline, or I might try to see if I could do a, a whole batch of them. Like, have you ever done three in a row? <laughs> you know, to uh, try to to turn that into some more challenge. And if it's too challenging, sometimes I'll just try to split it into just the tiniest increments. Like step one, open up the email where they asked me to do that thing. Step two list out each deliverable that they want in that email. <laughs> you know, step three, right, right. open a blank Excel spreadsheet. You know, and so and that really does help in terms of, oh, I've been avoiding it. This is hard. I don't know where to start. It's like, okay, well, you do know where to start. It starts by opening up the email. So, <laughs> but that's really all I got in terms of tricks to, to make something easier or harder. What, what else do you recommend? Yeah, there, I've, got, I've got a few of those, uh, of these kind of tips. And, and what you're talking about in some ways are these, fairly rote tasks, which are very important actually to doing, the, to doing them well. The high level of competency in rote tasks is, is actually key to creativity. When, when you're not doing those things well, you're acting like the mad professor who's super creative but not very competent. Uh, you're actually putting a lot more stress on your brain and decreasing your, your creative abilities. But I do want to differentiate between really creative tasks and tasks that you just kind of have to slog through. So talk a little bit about the tasks that you just want to slog through. Looked at a lot of research about how bad, and you've probably heard about this, how bad we are at multitasking and how much stress it puts on our brain to do a number of things at once. So you might be doing something like, all right, I've got this slog thing. It takes me an hour and a half to 
update my CRM or to send out this email or both. Take a screencast of what you're doing for about 10 minutes, right? See how many times you're switching apps. See how many times you're actually working or checking your email or picking up your phone. Mm. Actually look at what you're doing. We live in a world where we're usually we're doing two or three things at once. And things that seem really hard and take a long time actually take very short if you shut out all outside distractions. It's actually part of staying in flow is, is, is shutting out distraction. The novelist Jonathan Franzen, he apparently used to put hot glue into his Ethernet port back in the day when we needed a wired connection and work out of a windowless, non-air-conditioned office where no sound could get in. He basically shut out all outside and he said it was the only way he could work. And I think it's really interesting because so few of us do work that way. So one, shut out distraction. That is probably causing things to take twice or three times as long as you thought they were. It is not easy. But sometimes when we see how hard it is, we realize how addicted we are to distraction. So, so that's one of them. Another one is to break up, just like you're saying, break things down into tasks. Some things, creative, smaller tasks, the creative side of your tasks require intrinsic motivation, and you don't really need to get rewarded for that. You kind of want to isolate the parts of the task that you really enjoy. And like I say, if there are parts of the, the, the creative side, if you need more inspiration or training, give yourself that time because sometimes we need to up that ability. But other things that have been shown to really work are to think about a problem very directly and hard for about 15 to 20 minutes. Make sure you have all the kind of the parameters of the problem and then go for a walk, take a shower, take a nap, step away from it. It's usually the background processing in your mind that will come up with original ideas when you've run out of other ideas. Because what happens in that first 15, 20 minutes, the most obvious solutions come forth. And then it's when you let your mind rest that new ideas. So for the more creative ideas and more creative tasks, I recommend this sort of on-again, off-again bursts of creativity and you know, focus and then open-minded searching for uh, solution searching. And then finally, I'll, you know, because again, we can go on all day just about, about this one piece of it, but there's a lot of, of research to suggest that some tasks really do require external motivators. And so sometimes you have to treat yourself like a parent if you're really procrastinating and say, I'm going to give you that cookie, or I'm going to let you watch that TV, or I'm going to give you that reward if you do these three things. And set small goals for yourself and give yourself small rewards. A lot of people report like having that little treat at the end is a strong signal to their brain and a strong dopamine hit that makes the task not as hard as it once seemed. So these are all kind of ways essentially of managing energy through the long task of doing things that are hard as opposed to just reverting to going back and doing the things that are easy. I can tell you that if your main mode of operation is to always work on the things that are easy for you, you are basically atrophying at your desk and it, you know, it won't be long until you're way underperforming your, your potential. Yep, certainly. And that really connects there in terms of it can feel unsafe to do the thing that you're, that's really hard and you're not quite sure you could do, but uh, it's so essential to do that. I, I want to follow up on that the point you made that that certain tasks really can benefit from, you know, treating yourself like a child or, a, you know, hey, there's going to be a treat if you do this. Uh, what are the sorts of tasks that seem to, to benefit most from that uh, reward, treat, carrot action? Yeah, those tend to be the more rote, less creative, left brain type of tasks. So you have to do things very precisely. You know how to do them. They're difficult only in that they take attention and they take uh, diligence. Those are things that tend to do better. And if you're working with employees too, those are the kind of things you want to give people extrinsic motivations to do. Clean something thoroughly, 
clean out or you know whether that's a bathroom or a database make sure that we are have, have received all our receipts and accounted for them those are the kind of things that you want to give external motivation for because there's really not that much excitement from a job well done you're just expected to do it well and you have to but there's no real intrinsic joy in doing it something like come up with a new slogan pick new colors come up with a creative solution to a, uh, a problem that we've never solved before. Those are all things you don't need to give rewards for in that sense. You more want to celebrate people's creativity, give them more open space, give yourself more open space, and, and try to dial back that pressure to do it quickly is always helpful. Well, now I want to talk about sort of the, the social dimension here of, of unsafe thinking. So we talked about kind of managing yourself and your productivity and, and the challenges you take on, adjusting the difficulty. Now it can be tricky and feel unsafe to to challenge someone else's viewpoint in in a meeting to say something, however you say it, to convey I disagree. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think that uh, there is an alternative which may serve us better. You know, it can uh, can be quite intimidating or and and feel unsafe for people, maybe rightly because they there's retribution and animosity, or or maybe wrongly, it's just a boogeyman. Uh, but but tell us what are some of your your best practices, pro tips for engaging in unsafe thinking and articulating that with others. Oh man, this one is really, really hard because so many workplaces are the sort of schizophrenic mix mixtures of both really wanting creative employees and really beating them down when they don't fall in line with the with company flow. And so let me just start by saying there's this, you know, fascinating study that looked at teachers asking them, all right, first rate all of your kids in your class from your most creative to your least creative. So they put them on the spectrum, obviously without telling the kids. Next, they said, who are your favorite students and who are your least favorite students? And across the board, without exception, less creative kids fell into the favored student category. And more creative kids <laughs> were in the troublesome category that the teachers actually didn't like. And when asked, how important is it for you to teach creativity? Teachers said it was the number one most important thing that they wanted to do. So this tells us exactly that, you know, by fourth grade, we're already getting these mixed messages. Be creative and fall in line. So let's move that into the workplace, what, what's happening in the workplace. Meetings uh, are so often hated and so often deadly because there's this thing called shared information bias, which tends to happen. It's this deep psychological problem in groups that happens in a meeting. Okay, so 10 people come into a room, right? They're having a meeting because it's important for them to share information, right? That they have to find out what they don't know from the other people. That's why they're meeting. Otherwise, people could just work alone at their desks. Mm -hmm. What happens usually is the leader of the group will set the tone. They'll say what they know about the problem or about the, the situation. And, you know, that makes sense. And then ask for everybody's input. Well, it turns out that what people value and report liking in meetings is saying what someone else has said before. And usually so the leader says what everybody already knows because the leader's always speaking. And then everybody feels a psychological pull to rephrasing or somehow agreeing with what the leader said. And in fact, people tend to even forget what they wanted to say once this shared information bias starts to come up. And so what happens is everyone knows something, everyone knows A, B, and C when they enter. D, E, and F are held by a couple people in the meeting. Everyone gets together and everyone leaves still knowing A, B, and C. No one mentions D, E, and F. And the company is stupider for it. It doesn't work. So there's all these things that, that, that need to happen for that to be changed. Some of those things need to happen at the level of the organization. Some things can be done by individual contributors who don't have the power. Let's talk real quick about the, the top level of the organization. Leaders should not speak first in meetings. 
They don't need to give the context. Let somebody who doesn't usually speak start the meeting with what they know. You will get information that you did not expect. And they find often that low status individuals in an organization, for a number of reasons, have some of that hidden information that's most needed because it's not what everyone's talking about. It's what's being seen from the edges. And information from the edges is a key ingredient to being more creative in a group. So that's one. Number two, you could teach in your organization a kind of respectful disobedience. They do this in the airline industry. They do this in the Navy. Uh, they actually role play and practice for the co-pilot to say that they have a different opinion than the pilot. That turns out because in the 70s and 80s, when the pilot was kind of the king of the cockpit and no one wanted to speak up to usually him, we had way more airline crashes. But when co-pilots and, and even flight attendants were specifically trained to be disobedient, to speak back to power and say what they observed, airline crashes have plummeted because one person simply can't know everything that needs to be known and, and they create, you know, they have biases and make mistakes. So in your organization, teaching what's called intelligent disobedience, which means that you're going to you know, be totally loyal to the company, but you're going to speak back when you know something is wrong is a huge plus. From the individual contributor level, what do you do in a group? One, to get over that problem of actually the amnesia that comes from shared information bias, I recommend writing down before you get to the meeting everything that you want to say. It's hugely valuable. You know, so if you have the courage to speak up, this will help you not forget what you actually, what your point of view was. And by the end of the meeting, if something hasn't been said that you have written down that you still think is important, make sure it gets out there and you will then, you know, be contributing something that, that was otherwise missing. Second, just keep in mind that employees who engage in intelligent disobedience, those who kind of speak up and are willing to outwardly say they disagree, are considered more loyal and more effective by managers. You know, this has been well studied by managers than those who, who quietly disagree and pretend they do agree. So basically, if you're, not, if you're going along with the flow, but you're not wholeheartedly agreeing, people actually recognize it and it's seen as a sign of kind of subversion. If you're willing to speak up and then go along with decisions once the group has made them, being loyal to the larger group, you're going to be seen as more creative and a more effective collaborator. So that fear may be a little bit unfounded. Well, it's interesting. Indeed, I'm putting myself in the leader's shoes. Yep. It's preferable to have someone openly tell you they disagree than to grumble and quietly muddy the waters with their subversive, I think is a great word for that. At the same time, I guess there's that, that teacher effect that you mentioned that the creative ones are more kind of inconvenient because they don't fall in line. The meeting's going to take longer if you have a different opinion <laughs> yeah. that we need to cover as opposed to you just sort of nodding and agreeing with everyone else. But at the same time, that's what the meeting needs to do is, is surface this stuff that, that wouldn't get surfaced otherwise. So, so in a way, I mean, it seems like your leader has to have a little bit of, you know, awareness and virtue, I guess, in order <laughs> for them to, to appreciate what's happening there with that intelligent disobedience. Yeah. Well, well, first of all, if you're a leader and you're tearing your hair out because your employees are not creative enough, it's just important to internalize that message that if you are subtly or directly calling for agreement and for efficiency that you are you are the problem it's, it's probably not your employees so you know getting that opening that space for disagreement is going to be the source of your creativity yeah there's another kind of key leadership tool here i think but it's also something that that team members can help to build and google did a, a landmark study on it i spoke with steve kerr the coach of the golden state warriors he kind of uses it as well and it's kind of a little bit counterintuitive when you think about unsafe thinking, 
Turns out the most unsafe workplaces, the ones that are the most creative and, and willing to think outside the box, are the ones that provide the most psychological safety to people within that group. And I know that sounds crazy, but like what I'm trying to say here is that if everyone feels a sense of belonging, if they feel that their job is protected and they feel that they matter to the team, they are more likely to be able to, to go against the grain, to say the things that might sound crazy, to open up their mouth when they see things are going wrong. There's this great, great studies of you could judge a company's creativity by setting up a prediction market. So see how often people are agreeing with what the CEO says when you're actually asking them in front of the CEO, do you agree? But then have a side market where people bet on whether the outcomes of the choices are going to work or not, and you're going to get the real opinion. So prediction markets is actually a better way to know if people agree with you than just kind of asking them. But if you create a sense of psychological safety, you don't need that kind of output. You get to say, look, in this arena of creativity, everybody's equal. We fight it out. We go crazy. We are willing to look at, at ideas. And when you fail, we don't punish you. We actually we reward smart risk rather than just success then you'll find people are willing to start taking those chances. Now, you don't want like absolute chaos. That's why it's very important for groups to be cohesive when they move out of that exploratory phase and into the execution phase. But an exploratory phase is take a look at, are you building psychological safety within your organization? There are lots of tools for doing that. And again, that's, that's how Steve Kerr, when he got to the Golden State Warriors, kind of unlocked all the creative potential of that team to take them to whatever five uh, NBA championships in a row was by first setting up psychological safety in the locker room so they could get more unsafe on the court. And he kind of walked me through that. And I, I tell that story in the book. Beautiful. Well, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. I guess I'll, I'll just say that one of the things that I found most fascinating has to do with the real psychological mechanisms. And this is just kind of one more tip that I think is, is helpful when you understand this. I came to understand something that I call the safe thinking cycle. So what happens is the world change changes around us and that creates a certain amount of anxiety. What we're doing is no longer working. We sense it because we've stepped up into a new position and we're not quite able to perform in it yet. We need to learn more or what we're doing no longer works or there's a new competitor in the space or you know anything like that. We get a signal of anxiety. Now we're programmed by evolution to see anxiety as a threat to our bodies, basically. With anxiety out in the African savanna would mean that there was a, an animal about to eat you. And in those cases, what happens naturally from anxiety is that our peripheral vision shuts down, our non-essential bodily functions begin to slow down, and we really fall back on what we know works. So we take what's called stereotypical actions. So anxiety will first lead to this sense of like, okay, I got to do something differently. But when you, by the time you start thinking what to do differently, you're programmed by evolution to fall back and do something expedient and safe. And then things get worse because you haven't reacted to the stimulus. And the cycle just repeats and repeats and repeats. And so that's where most people find themselves more and more stressed out. And the more stressed out you are, the less likely you are to take new and creative actions. The way to break this cycle is not to respond differently or to force yourself to respond differently. It's actually to reframe what anxiety means. And this has been a really fascinating, a fascinating look at for me into sort of a whole bunch of different, both kind of biological science and psychological science. But people who effectively break this cycle are those who tell themselves that anxiety is not a signal of danger, but a signal that they're on their creative edge. So if what you're doing is moving away from situations that cause anxiety, you're actually creating further and further anxiety. And there's a lot of psychological research that shows the more we concentrate on avoiding a feeling, the more we're going to have it. The more you move towards that anxiety and say, okay, 
that anxiety is a signal that I should move toward it, not away. That is where we can experience the anxiety and then take new action in its face. So um, it was very counterintuitive to me. Nobody likes that feeling of anxiety, but if you can take it as a signal that you're in your creative zone, when you feel it, that can really reshape your relationship to the creative thinking cycle. Well, that's really good. And, and I think we might characterize anxiety all the more broadly, you know, not just the, oh, crap, something terrible is going to happen <laughs> sensation. But I guess mm -hmm. maybe also like think about just sort of learning and growth mindset stuff. It's just mm -hmm. sort of in terms of awkward mm -hmm. or dread, like, oh, I'm not mm -hmm. any good at this. Oh, I feel yeah. stupid. It's like that whole family of of unpleasant feelings you can associate to, oh, I'm at the edge of, of creativity or of growth or of breakthrough, as opposed to, oh, this is a thing to retreat from. Yeah, for sure. The things that are like uh, worth doing but don't make you anxious are the things that you have been doing for a really long time, probably, you know, for a decade. So the first time you give a, a speech in public, you might feel terrified. Once you've given that talk 20 times, you don't feel scared anymore. If all you're doing is giving that same talk again and again and again, your, your days are kind of numbered. So it's great to fall back on the things that we know and we know we can do well. I would say give yourself at least 15 to 25% of your time, though, doing things that you suck at, and that will make you just a much better, more flexible thinker. All right. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? I still love the bumper sticker. I don't know who even said it, but don't believe everything you think has always makes me smile. And uh, I kind of take that as a motto for myself. Thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? I looked at a study that showed that people, when given a, a chance between feeling medium-level electric shocks and being bored, would usually, after about 10 minutes, choose the electric shocks. So when they put, put people into a, a, a white plain room and said, you can have the electric shock and leave, or you can stay for another 10 minutes, people mostly took the electric shock. And just amazing to me, I, I think probably 100 years ago, 50 years ago, maybe even 25 years ago, we were pretty good at sitting with ourselves and sitting with our own, our own feelings and ideas. The fact that we're at a place where most of us would rather be in pain than quiet is definitely a, a sign that there's a lot of white space and a lot of opportunity for those who can be a little bit more mindful and take their time through processes and, and be in, in that zone where you know, creativity arises, which is in that quiet zone. And how about a favorite book? Well, I'm reading right now a book called Station Eleven. It's a post-pandemic uh, science fiction book about a future in post-pandemic. And sitting through a pandemic right now, I'm kind of enjoying its, uh, its beauty and its quiet, looking at what the world sometimes becomes. And a favorite tool, something that helps you be awesome at your job? I have been really appreciating using Asana lately. It's a fantastic product and helps me organize the millions of tasks that I try to keep. And I've, I've tried many, many different tools and have really struggled to use one again and again. I'm, I'm on kind of month 18 now with it and I find that it's really sticking. So that's my tool. And how about a favorite habit? I think I mentioned the one that I'm most excited about which is doing things that I'm bad at and staying out of my comfort zone. So uh, continuing to press, although I am not improving as fast as I'd like, continuing to press on my singing is, uh, is my latest habit that I'm, that I'm trying to stay in. And how about a favorite nugget, something that you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks and they quote it back to you often? I find that, that the thing that most gets quoted back to me from my work actually comes from my first book, uh, Winning the Story Wars. Maybe it's because it's been out for so long. But I kind of had three key tips for how to communicate and to how to build your own personal brand and tell stories. And that was be interesting, tell the truth, and live the truth. And that gets repeated back to me as a sort of three pillars in life that are always worth following. 
And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? JonasSachs.com. All right. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah, I would just say it all really comes down to uh, move towards the things that scare you, get out of your comfort zone. And if you've been saying that you're going to do things differently, start doing something different today. All right. Jonah, this has been a treat. Thank you. And keep on rocking. All right. Great talking. My favorite thing Jonah said here was to not be an expert, but rather an explorer, which one is just a great, you know, quotable contrast, expert, explorer, verbal similarities, and not so much this, but that. As a speaker, I'm into that. But even more so, it's just super true. And that once you think you have all the answers, well, then you're in trouble. And often folks who are just starting something out for the first time have these fresh, different, unsafe even perspectives. And, And I've had just some really cool conversations about things that I guess I thought I knew a lot about talking to someone who's new at that thing. I was like, oh, hey, you doing this? Yeah. How's that going? Oh, well, it's, we're, we're doing that it this way. I was like, really? But what about this issue? Like, yeah, you know, we were worried about that issue, but really only about 4% of uh, the time has that ever come up. I was like, really? <laughs> You've changed my thinking because I took the time to explore. So valuable stuff from Jonah. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F565. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe to catch our next guest. It's Mike Bacalowicz. He is talking about what to fix next, some help thinking about prioritization in tasks and organizations. Hope to catch you there and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, Check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.